Welcome to Antiquity in Gotham, a podcast that explores the reinterpretation, reception, and legacy of antiquity in New York City. When you think of Pompeii, you think of death and destruction. And if you're an archaeologist like me, really amazing houses. Since its catastrophic destruction in 79 CE and its rediscovery in the mid-18th century, Pompeii and the other cities on the Bay of Naples have captivated the imaginations of authors, artists, and architects from then until the present. So today on Antiquity in Gotham, I will be examining the creation of Pompeian rooms in the city's Gilded Age mansions. The origin of Pompeii's popularity in the 19th century was rooted in the archeological discoveries at the site, but they were not the sole source nor were they probably the most influential one. Pompeii became so well known and so popular because it was the main character in one of the most popular novels of the 19th century. Edward Bulworth-Lytton's 1834 runaway bestseller, The Last Days of Pompeii. It was a camp melodrama with proto-Christian lovers who escaped the eruption, a prostitute with the heart of gold who helps them, and of course, parishes, and quite a few decadent Pompeians who meet a suitable end, a fiery death that is deserved because they were not morally upright and were all rather corrupt, dissipated, and sinful. But with the backdrop for the spectacular destruction were the glorious houses of Pompeii, which Bulworth Lighton described in detail. Specifically, he mentions a lavish dinner with oysters, fish, and all sorts of delicacies set in a house which was based on the known house, the House of the Tragic Poet, and which Bulworth-Lytton described in great detail. Bulworth-Lytton's novel popularized the interiors and was a runaway bestseller. It was translated into multiple languages and served as the basis for plays and operas. So this novel, even more than the publications of archeological discoveries, popularized Pompeii, its houses, and its destruction in the 19th century. The recreation of Pompeian interiors in major international expositions also helped. The presence of the Pompeian court at London's 1851 Crystal Palace also established Pompeii in the minds of the public, as well as in the minds of designers, artists, decorators, and other tastemakers who helped to bring Pompeii's influence to the United States. So by the second half of the 19th century, the Pompeian room had become a necessity for anyone building a grand mansion. This was the first time that there had been an extraordinary amount of private wealth in the United States. So having a grand house with certain styled rooms, including a Pompeian room, was a way to express one's status, wealth, and affluence. If you'd like to read more about this, check out the show notes on the website. Now, Americans also looked to European models for their domestic design and decoration. This was partially fueled by the migration of European artisans armed with their design books to the United States. European models also provided Americans who didn't have an aristocracy or a royalty. European models also provided Americans with an architectural vocabulary of aristocracy and royalty. In other words, Americans could demonstrate their status and or wealth through the grand homes that they built. A palatial mansion was the most clear statement of one's economic, social, and cultural status. 
the construction of mansions gained additional momentum due to the great fortunes that had been created during the Civil War and to the economic boom that Americans experienced in the last decades of the 19th century. America's most affluent desired to display their wealth through their homes. These parlors, sitting rooms, library, dining rooms, and other rooms had distinct purposes. These rooms implied a different type of lifestyle, a life with leisure. And having all of these different rooms meant that one was able to distance oneself and one's home from the commercialism and hard work that it provided them, kind of underscoring some of the tensions inherent in domestic space. Houses and the styles of rooms within them, as well as the decorative objects displayed in these rooms were regarded as an expression of the men and women who inhabited. Affluent individuals wanted to exhibit their wealth and status by displaying imported objects and by using decorative styles in their houses that demonstrated that they were cosmopolitan. So this idea of cosmopolitan domesticity, which scholar Christian Hoganson has kind of termed, incorporated not only objects that had been imported from abroad, but also design choices. And this led to the creation of themed rooms. These could include European rooms, as well as Mesoamerican and so-called Oriental rooms, which could really be anything from something vaguely Middle Eastern to Chinese or Japanese. Classical antiquity as a signifier of European culture and as the originator of European culture, at least as it was perceived at this time, had great appeal. It offered a range of different paths for patrons and designers to reference. Also important for the embrace of these period or themed rooms was the aesthetic movement which was an artistic movement that dominated interior decoration in the late 19th century in the United States. As an artistic movement, it placed emphasis on the beautification of the home and on the creation of spaces where fine and applied arts were allied and closely integrated. Beauty was found in the harmonization of different colors, forms, and patterns that were derived from Western and non-Western cultures. Classical antiquity, once again, fit the bill as a reference point that was both beautiful and creative. So it is unsurprising that Gilded Age New York, and the Gilded Age is really meant to be the last three decades of the 19th century. It's a phrase coined by Mark Twain, once again, of course, a derogatory quip from Twain, but one that came to signify the excesses and shininess of the era. So Gilded Age New York had its fair share of mansions with Pompeii interiors that attested to one's status, class, wealth, and hopefully good taste. It was these men who made their money in oil, commerce, and of course railroads that supported the creation of some of New York City's greatest public and civic works, such as New York Public Library, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They also underwrote operas and musical series and companies. So these men created spaces that reinterpreted antiquity in their homes. A themed room was a way that a member of New York's elite or New York's aspiring elite could attest to their learnedness, cultural sophistication, wealth, and membership in the upper echelons of society. So to understand why it was popular to have a Pompeian room, let's discuss some of the grandees who actually had such rooms in their homes. You have to kind of start, in a sense, with one of the biggest of the big, J.P. Morgan. He was a legendary banker and financier whose eponymous company is still a major player in the financial sector. He was a major collector of ancient art and classical art, much of which he ended up donating to 
the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Not only did he also have a classically inspired headquarters, which you can see a picture of on the website, but he also had a drawing room that was designed, decorated, and furnished throughout by Mr. Christian Herder with quote-unquote Pompeii inspiration. George Sheldon, who was writing about the room in 1883 in his book, noted that, quote, although nothing like it can be seen in Pompeii, nor in that excellent example of Pompeian decoration, the House of Germanicus at Rome, a breath from the Greco-Roman epoch of Italia seems to have left its faint impress on the walls or rather its faint fragrance in the atmosphere, or rather its faint fragrance in the atmosphere. No slavish copying of another dwelling or another period, ancient or modern, and no demonstrative self-assertion, but only a mild gaiety of expression amid the aroma of perfect taste." Unquote. This assessment of Morgan's Pompeian room is not only positive, but it highlights that Morgan's room is an improvement on Pompeian and ancient Roman interiors. This idea that Americans can make a better version of antiquity or any culture runs deep within the American psyche and the approach to space and design even today. But for two other examples of that, please listen to the podcast about ancient garden or the podcast about dining like Nero, since both of those podcasts deal with this kind of American idea that we can do it better than everybody else. Back to J.P. Morgan's drawing room. The room was not a wholesale adaptation of a Pompeian room, perhaps what has been described as suggestions rather than an imitation of Pompeian elements, which were mixed with other exotic touches. The room's walls were divided by red pilasters whose color matched the frieze. The furniture was upholstered in, quote, Japanese stuffs worked in silk and gilt thread with Japanese fabrics and on the divan, a word used to describe a low-rise sofa in the Middle East during this era, there were cushions with quote-unquote old Persian embroidery. Old master paintings also hung against this artistic bricolage. The eclectic nature of Morgan's drawing room embodies this idea of the neo-antique, where elements of ancient and modern architecture were combined with other artistic, architectural, or decorative elements from the other periods and or geographic locales to create highly original and immersive interior. J.P. Morgan was not alone in his creation of a Pompeian room. Nathan Strauss, the department store tycoon and part owner of Macy's, also had a highly accurate Pompeian room. The walls of this room actually even included replicas of mythological scenes taken from two different Pompeian houses, including the famous House of the Veti. You can see some of these on the website. There was also a fountain with black basalt marble, as well as mosaic floors covered with animal skins. There were reproductions of ancient sculpture and practical objects that had been faithfully executed for Strauss by the president of the Museum of Naples a reminder that authenticity was important to the creation of such interiors. Even if it was a copy, it had to be an accurate copy. The interior, however, was gently critiqued for its bright color, which commentators at the time noted were typical of Pompeii. Other mansions, including William H. Vanderbilt's Triple Palace on Fifth Avenue, also a Herder Brothers project, was completed in 1879. It had a Pompeian bathroom, with female figures in cupids, as well as a Pompeian atrium. John D. Rockefeller selected Francis Newton to paint Pompeian paintings in his nine-story 
mansion at 10 West 54th Street in the summer of 1914, perhaps getting his inspiration for this room from the newly installed Bosco Reale rooms at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Similar rooms can be found in the mansions of William T. Walters in Baltimore and of Leland Stanford in San Francisco. So while Pompeian rooms were incorporated into the greatest homes of the Gilded Age, these rooms rested on contemporary fault lines about the United States' nascent empire, its rise and possible fall. Pompeii never shed the associations of its infamous demise. It symbolized decadence, decline, and newly gotten wealth having no good taste. Pompeian interiors often could border on dubious or bad taste. Harriet Spotford's Art Decoration Applied to Furniture, a leading publication on interiors, discussed the Pompeian style in detail, stating that Pompeian art is, quote, debased Greek art via Asia, but it can be well executed if there's a lot of money to do with it, unquote. So Pompeii was clearly very popular with the newly minted millionaires of the United States' Gilded Age. One room stands out for its remarkable interior, and that is the music room of Henry G. Marquand. When Henry Marquand sold his stake in the St. Louis Iron Mountain and South Railroad Railroad for $1 million in 1880, he poured his money into philanthropy. He was an avid art collector and a supporter of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. In 1881, he commissioned Richard Morris Hunt to design his New York residence, which scholars have noted became a kind of background or stage set for his transformation into a philanthropist from the capital. It was located at the northwest corner of 68th Street and Madison, and the residence exemplifies the aesthetic movement's principles. Most important and most impressive for this conversation was the Greco-Pompeian Music Room. This room, which was designed by Lawrence Almatadema, the famed Anglo-Dutch painter was an immersive environment where bespoke art, furniture, and sound worked in concert. Lawrence Almatadema drew on a diverse range of sources from antiquity to create this remarkable room. The art of the room set the tone for the music room, pun somewhat intended. Frederick Layton, who was president of the Royal Academy in the UK, painted the ceiling. Here, appropriately, Melopomene and Thalia, the muses of sacred and epic poetry, appeared with Mnemosyne, their mother, and they were accompanied by a floating genie wandering about to the music, a tripod, and other elements. The most important and famous painting in the room is undoubtedly that which was located to the left of the entrance. This was a painting called A Reading from Homer by Lawrence Alma Tadema. In this painting, which you can see on the website, a rapt audience appeared to be listening to a recitation of Homer, perhaps a subtle reminder to guests to listen attentively to the music that filled this room. Paintings by Gainsborough and contemporary Spanish sculpture was also displayed in this room. Genuine Greek vases were displayed here, and there were also copies of Greek and Roman marble busts and Greek terracottas that appeared. There was also an Osberg cabinet that had three silver and silver-gilted reliefs of Ceres, Bacchus, Venus, and Cupid. So there is a real mixing of ancient and modern, real and copied, in this room. So in a sense, the room plays on the borders between time 
and place and time and space. Lawrence Almatavina designed a remarkable suite of furniture for the room, inspired by the art, music, and words of classical antiquity. These included chairs and a beautiful settee. You can see pictures of this on the show notes. But the most remarkable piece of all was the glorious grand piano that Lawrence Almatadema designed. The piano, having been built by Steinway, was then sent to Johnston, Norman & Co., who executed Lawrence Almatadema's vision. On the top of the piano, on its lid, the names of Apollo and the Muses in Greek were inlaid in different woods and framed by ribbon-tied laurel wreaths, which were accompanied by matching piano stools. The fallboard itself was decorated with a painting called The Wandering Minstrels, in which musicians and dancers frolicked. This extraordinary piano was actually then sent back and used in concerts in Almatatama's house. But the piano came to symbolize some of the excessive wealth of the era. The piano cost $50,000 to manufacture in the 1880s, an extraordinary sum of money then. It was not manufactured by Americans, aside from the piano, but all of the intricate inlaid work had been done in the United Kingdom. While the piano had been put on display in London, even the Prince of Wales and the Princess of Wales came to visit it. As soon as the piano returned to Marquand's residence, it was not on display. So many people thought that this piano was a symbol of the excess of the era. Decorator and furnisher called the cost a remarkable example of lavish expenditure, but it was not meant to last. Marquand passed away just after the start of the 20th century, and eventually the house was sold and all of its contents auctioned off. The piano languished in obscurity. It was finally rediscovered, and in 1997, it was sold at auction to the Clark Institute for over $1.2 million. So it was interesting for a piano that was once so glorious that fell into obscurity, it reemerged and is today recognized for being a remarkable work of art that had an amazing setting that truly created an interior inspired by antiquity. So the appropriation of antiquity in domestic spaces was an elite phenomenon. It attested to the learnedness, cultural sophistication of the owner. It was also a way to say that one belonged to certain social classes. Classical education and knowledge had once been really a part of popular culture in the late 18th and early part of the 19th century in the United States. But now, a classical education and classical knowledge were moving towards being symbols or a manifestation of elite culture and of elite status. As Marquand himself once noted, the desire to be surrounded by objects of beauty is an accompaniment of high civilization, of a more complex and intricate mode of life. Thus, for Marquand, Nathan Strauss and J.P. Morgan, and others like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, the presence of these rooms that used antiquity as a source of decoration or to create an impressive, immersive interior attested that they belonged to the United States cultural and financial elite. At the same time, as we can see from the reaction to the stunning piano that once sat in Marquand's music room, these creations sat on some of the emerging cultural fault lines of Gilded Age New York about its wealth, its creation, display, and ultimate this podcast was supported by a grant from the Classical Association of the Atlantic States. If you want to learn more about that organization, please visit them at caas-cw.org. 